0: The Metaverse is emerging as the next big technology platform and promises to be the next frontier for human experiences on the internet. Into the Metaverse covers companies, technologies, and trends that are bringing these promises to life. Join creator and host, Jonathan Ross friedman founder and CEO of SuperSocial, as he interviews the brilliant minds that are building, shaping, and investing in the Metaverse. Welcome to Into the Metaverse, I'm Jan. joining me today. Is Chris Heatherly, CEO and founder of Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. It's a very promising name. We're going to tap into that later, Chris. Uh, Chris is a veteran executive in the games industry and has been an innovator and leader at the intersection of entertainment and technology for over 20 years. He ran the games business for both Disney and NBC Universal as a general manager and is an experienced brand builder, having built franchises such as Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, and Jurassic World into global multi-billion dollar businesses. Better say, helped... Built those franchises. You didn't build them on your own, even though that would be a wonderful endeavor. Uh, but but Chris, you know, we had a bunch of conversation until today. Very glad to have you on the podcast. Finally, thanks for coming.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So jumping into kind of my fir- first favorite question that I ask all guests, and you know, been fortunate enough to have a bunch of fantastic, you know, builders and executives and investors on the podcast, and it's a kind of a dispute disputed term because apparently according to some media outlets it's it's a term that died already multiple times only this year but i want to get your perspective on what is your read on what is or what could be this thing called the metaverse
1: um well i think the real metaverse is the uh is web3 itself meaning kind of the confluence of blockchain uh digital item ownership, this move towards decentralization away from centralized platforms, the concept that your identity travels with you, your virtual items, and kind of the things that you have collected or acquired on the internet travel with you, that you have control over your data and you decide how much of it you share. So all of those things are part of changing the dynamic of the internet from one in which A small group of companies like facebook and and uh you know and google uh and apple control the entire internet back to an environment where um where individuals own their identity they own their information they own their stuff and then they can travel the internet and interact with uh you know different applications on the internet in a decentralized way i think that that's And then from an entertainment perspective, I think what it means is the shift from linear content to, well, from, from really from kind of like, you know, a world where television and film were the dominant uh, media, you know, to a world where interactive media or digital media is the dominant form, you know, whether it be YouTube, TikTok, um, you know, or video games, right? And then, and then, and then, from a video game perspective, you know, the idea of, you know, more and more uh, multiplayer experiences, large multiplayer experiences, you know, the creator economy, um, kind of coming, uh, becoming a bigger thing in, uh, in games and in, uh, in, in just how people, the ability for people to build their own kind of entrepreneurial enterprise on top of a game or another or another platform. So I think there's all of these trends, right? It's like, you know, Web3, blockchain, AI, um, decentralization, uh, uh, digital ownership, uh, royalties and for royalty enforcement, creator economy, this whole kind of thing. To me, that whole confluence of stuff is is what the what the metaverse is, and really, what it is is a big—it's a shift from kind of centralized, you know, Web two type experiences to um, you know a more decentralized experience enabled by the blockchain, with all these different applications that are composable, and where from a game perspective, you can go anywhere into any game, and your stuff travels with you. That—that that I think is the the, the mind shift.
0: One question as a follow-up on this broader definition, which I, by the way, I do agree with you that the metaverse is is an inflection point yeah. on the transition of the internet into something bigger and newer, and it includes all sorts of technologies like, you know, Gen AI, blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. One yeah, it's the next generation
1: of the internet, basically, right?
0: One thing you didn't mention, and I'm curious, and maybe I missed it, but I don't think I have. Does it have to be or some of it has to be 3D?
1: No. I think it definitely will not always be 3D. Um I think that um yeah, I think a lot of people when they think the think the metaverse think that what that is is like ready player one where you're in some big game engine and it's an MMO type thing and you're running around and you know, and and, and there will be some of that. Um but I, I don't think that's what the metaverse is. I think the metaverse at a at a fundamental level is inner is the is interoperability uh and the and and the and owning your own digital identity and the ability to, you know, if I, you know, in the future of the metaverse, right, if I go to TikTok and let's say that I have a big community you know, somewhere else on the internet, you know, whether it's Twitter or, or, uh, or YouTube or, or, uh, or video games, it doesn't matter, but I've got this huge audience and now I want to bring my audience to TikTok, right? Well, I can, you know, set my brand up on TikTok and all the people who own NFTs or tokens who are part of my, you know, brand and my club can come over to TikTok and engage in my, you know, content and I'm able to move my community, you know, with me to that platform and they're able to get benefits on that platform because they participated with me on another platform. Right. And that's not how the internet works today. It's very much siloed. It's like, yeah, you have great interoperability within the Apple ecosystem, within the Google ecosystem, but not between. Right. And so, um, what the, and so I think that, you know, what what a gamer's experience is going to, should look like in Lead 3, right, is that you'll have more things like Roblox, more things like Unreal, uh, uh, Fortnite Creative Mode. Uh, you know, I think you'll see more of these UGC and kind of what they call PGC or professional gaming, uh, uh what you do, right? Uh, prof- kind of, prof- studios that make content on metaverse platforms right as opposed to building the underlying engine i think you'll see more of that you'll see more um each one of those things is like a mini application none of them are like the scale of a triple a game they're all kind of smaller it's a little bit back to like the web the kind of you know flash based mini game kind of world that we had you know before mobile and but you'll have all of these experiences that you can dip in and dip out of but the connective tissue across all of them will be your wallet and your stuff Right. And so uh, a gamers and, and also that will connect to your social media platform. So, you know, I think a gamer will be able to go from Roblox to TikTok to Twitch to uh, Shopify and buy merchandise that's connected with something that they earned in a game. Um, you know, the there will be gamification between the game itself and social media so that. Um, you know if I help grow the social media experience or I'm a big contributor to the social media community of a brand I can get in-game rewards like all of that inner interconnectivity is going to happen and some of it will be on things that look completely 2d and some of it will be things that are big 3d walk around run around worlds um, but really what I think the what the the metaverse is is that is the it's the connective it's going to be the thing that connects all those things.
0: I love that. I love that. And I think, you know, it's such a great way to think about the metaverse, not as a place, but as an inflection point or a point of time where there is a confluence of a bunch of emerging technologies that all power a new type of human behavior on the internet.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally right. Let's talk a bit
0: about the backlash around blockchain and web three that has transpired uh, following, in the aftermath of the explosion of NFTs. In a world where typically technology finds so many proponents um, who typically get excited and want to build on top of a technology, and we're seeing it now with generative AI, and of course there are concerns about generative AI. What is your perspective on why there has been so much backlash around blockchain enabled Web application, i.e., NFTs and other crypto-related things. Where is that backlash is coming from, and why, in particular, the gaming community have been so allergic to that concept?
1: Well, this is a this is a complex question, uh, and it, and it breaks down into a couple buckets. So I'll try to. I ask one, complex
0: questions. Yeah, yeah. I'll try to
1: break it down in a in a in a simplified way. But you've got a group of people. That I would say are a very vocal minority, both of gamers, but also heavily game makers—people who work at game companies who don't want who 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 like the AAA experience of games, who grow up on AAA, who um you know they love everything about AAA. They want ga- that's what they want games to be. They want games to be like blockbuster movie releases that you know are you know great. every you know every generation is a huge breakthrough in graphics you know um it appeals to these highly skill-based players um who are you know really good gamers who have the skill that group of people are allergic to in-game monetization and to you know they were allergic to -to free-to-play right so if you go back uh a You know, if you go back a decade, these were the same people, and for the last decade, they've been complaining about free-to-play monetization. They complained about ad-based monetization. Um, You know, but but if you look, and I always say this to people who make those arguments, you know, I'm like, look, the reality is that what made the gaming business explode and become bigger than film and television was not AAA gaming; it was free-to-play. Right? It was mobile. It was accessible. It was the accessibility. Of, of the platform, you know, if you look at mobile, 60% or more of players are women, you know, women were barely playing games, you know, 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, you know, they felt excluded by the content that was being made at the time, you know, when casual games and not to be, you know, stereotypical, but, you know, cozy games and, and puzzle games and things like that, you know, created games that 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 people who are not traditional core gamers wanted to play right and so the game games has been if has always benefited from these innovations in business model um but you've got people who have this like reflexive anti-monetization in games it's not that they it, it, it their their allergy is very much about they just want to Pay it upfront fee, and they don't want to think about monetization at all. They just want pure escapism. You can understand that motivation, right? But the reality is, when you look at the market and the way most people pay and play in games, microtransactions have been hugely democratizing to people. And I would argue that um, that this idea that that what Web three and and NFTs do is they restore. In a world where most people where, where, where the dominant form of gaming is free to play, and that's just a fact, you know, something that we've lost in the game world is this idea of secondary markets. So, you know, people don't talk about this a lot, but GameStop was a huge part of the success of the PS2 generation, the PS3 generation, you know, those consoles coming up because people who who wanted to buy a game on day one and could afford to do so, could buy the game for 60 bucks. but then they could sell it back and get some money that they could reinvest into the next game. And the next guy to come in who maybe couldn't afford the 60 bucks, could buy the game for 30 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever it was on sale for. So this idea of secondary markets or secondary uh, sales democratized the market and allowed more people to play games than would have been able to play if the price was only 60 bucks. Now with NFTs, you know, you have this, uh, the ability for people to get liquid on their investment into their game assets. And I think that in in inflationary times, especially, this is going to be a real, people are going to start to see that this is, this is really important because it allows gamers to, um, it allows gamers to get some, you know, get some money back on some of the things that they've invested in these games. It allows them to sell it to other gamers who may not have brought, bought at the, you know, at the primary price, but may buy at the secondary price. It introduces this idea of collectability and rarity, so some things can actually appreciate in value. And and if and it also introduces this idea that you can earn money by being a participant somehow in the game. Um, and this is something that's relatively new. You know, Roblox is doing it uh, in their way. Fortnite Creative Mode is doing it. But web 3 really has the potential to kind of democratize that to everyone. So you know, I think that that web 3 will kind of will will be this next big layer of democratization of gaming and the economics around gaming. But there's a lot of people who just don't like the 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 idea of 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 bringing these economic things into games and I I can I can understand their point of view although I think it's a very elitist one. Um, so that's one group, the, the, then there's, you know, all the scams and all the people who, you know, saw this new technology that was unregulated and kind of wide wild west and saw an opportunity to make a lot of money or who, you know, were just enthusiastic about the technology, but not particular, particularly competent. You know, you had a lot of people who went in and dropped these, you know, all these collections in web three that you know made all these big promises and they never delivered anything um either because they were just you know always playing scam people or because they legitimately tried stuff but didn't just didn't know what they were doing and failed um and that's really soured people legitimately and i think that you know um but i also think that there's kind of an inevitable aspect of like once you introduce um, the concept of you can make money off of this. Like the first thing people are going to try, especially gamers who like their brains are wired to like find the holes in the game. Right. And to find you know, to min max, they're going to try to find a way to exploit the system. And they have. So in the short term, that's like a lot of bad headlines and, you know, some people feel ripped off and, you know, there's there's kind of bad feelings in the in the in the short term, um, but long term, I think that it's almost inevitable that if you introduce this, the, these financial the, these these financial uh, these ways to make money in gaming, that that it's gonna that you're gonna run into problems before that you didn't anticipate that you that you didn't need to fix, but eventually it finds an equilibrium. By the way, same thing with free-to-play. There were people, I mean, people forget, like, you know, the Smurfs game where, you know, some kid went in and spent, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of their parents' money on Smurf Smurf in-app purchases, and, you know, I mean, there were all kinds of horror stories like this, you know, in the beginning of free-to-play people gaming, people who weren't particularly scrupulous, um, you know, abuse of privacy information, you know, all this stuff. So I think that to a certain degree, unfortunately, it's kind of normal with the new technology that people are going to try to exploit it. And then, um, but I think some of that hesitation that people have is real and based on something, right? It's not just, it's not just FUD. Um, And then I think the last thing is that, that anyone who has an interest in centralized gaming at a business level is going to have a problem with this because it's so disruptive, fundamentally. You know, it's disruptive to big publishers. It's disruptive to, to you know, all the to a lot of like the old user acquisition infrastructure of you know vendors who sell you know software that you know either measures ads or does performance. A ton of people who like make opinion in the game space who benefit from the old way of doing business, right? Um, you know, platforms like Apple and Google, you know, like they benefit from having a centralized control over the distribution of games on their platform. So all of these people, like we kind of moved past the point of like, at first they wanted to stop it, right? And, and, and they have been unsuccessful in doing that. Now they're kind of like, okay, we're not going to be able to stop it. Now we're going to have to accept it, but we're going to put all these rules around it. We're going to make it very hard, you know, and, but as eventually, you know, as players, become, I mean, look, it took, when we first started doing in-app purchase, you know, uh, in, in mobile conversion rates were like 1%, you know, you fast forward to today, like some games have, you know, 10% or better conversion rates. You know, not all games, a lot of games don't, but, you know, what happened progressively over the course of a decade is that people became used to spending money on, on microtransactions in games. It's no longer a new idea. It became very common. A whole new generation of gamers came up where that was the dominant model. And now no one thinks twice about spending in a game, right? I think the same thing will happen with Web3, but there's a learning curve And, um, you know, it's going to take some time for the bugs to get kicked out. But ultimately, like, I think that that it's a combination of people who don't want things to change and people who are fearful of what the change means for them who are trying to hold on to central power combined with bad activity that. um, But all of that to me is like. Ten years from now, this is gonna be looked at a moment in time where where you know where like you know the inevitable kind of early Wild West period happen. But I have no if you look at all the trend lines, adoption of uh blockchain technology is not slowed, adoption of lot of of Web3 ideas, you know, like Roblox now has limiteds, right? They weren't doing limited edition stuff before NFTs, they're doing that because nfts reddit these kind of things have you know put this idea in the mind of gamers now you know these things aren't going to go away right we're not putting we're not putting pandora back in the box so um you know i think that i think that uh you know if you look at the long term signs i just think it's inevitable
0: thank you for that elaborate explanation uh a lot to unpack there chris i want to switch gears and talk about creator platforms roblox a 17-year-old overnight success, uh, now 66 million daily active user. Um, Fortnite, Creative, UEFN, uh, millions of millions of daily active users. Zapedo, Rec Room, Minecraft. I mean, there's a lot going on in the 3D UGC world. What do you? What, in your mind, is the role and importance of these platforms in the wider ecosystem as we look at the next generation internet?
1: Well, I think the, the, the meta is that, and, and I said this a while on LinkedIn and it caused a bit of a stir, but um, after I saw UEFN at, um, at GDC, I was like, you know, the app era is over, right? Because when I went and talked to all the, you know, talented people that I had known for years who, you know, had been in free play companies and were, you know, like those that either, you know, failed or succeeded or been bought or whatever we're looking at their next thing. They're all looking at like Roblox or UEFN. And, and, you know, a big part of the reason is that the mobile ecosystem, um, you know, there's such enormous friction uh, in that ecosystem and it's just become more and more, right? Like the, you know, Apple introducing these privacy changes has made it. You you don't get the data fundamentally that you need in order to do targeted advertising and make sure that, you know, the whole concept of, like, a a performance marketing on on Facebook is I'm paying much more per user, but they're much higher quality users. Well, if you don't get the data, you can't validate that, right? So um, that's kind of broken acquisition on the mobile platform now. Some people are still having success, but it's become a lot harder to break through. I thought it was really interesting, by the way, that yesterday or, or or so there was an article that came out that was talking about uh, Netflix's gaming strategy, and something like fifty percent of the people who click on an icon in the Netflix app to download a Netflix game ever actually play the game. So that gives you a so so. What that means is you've got people who are already subscribers of Netflix who are um, who don't have to pay pay another dime, right, to install the game and play it? Who are clicking the link, and and there's no funnel friction in them at all. They don't have to. There's no even sign up when they they're already signed in when they launch the game. It's still only fifty percent. So to me, that is the purest metric you're ever going to get on how much funnel friction there is in the idea of cross promoting from one game to one game, to another game. You know what it tells you is there's massive loss to that funnel. So when you so if you look at something like Roblox, where you have your own identity, you have your own avatar, you have your own inventory, you have liquidity in the form of Robux in your account that you that you've already purchased or earned that you can spend on other games. The you're 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 in an environment where each individual game, because there's so many games to play, each individual game doesn't have to be um, uh, it doesn't have to cost you know AAA games are costing 300 million dollars as much as a blockbuster film now you know you're making games for you know roblox i would imagine for hundreds of thousands of dollars you know single digit low single digit millions of dollars um but increasingly at with better and better production values you know when you build on fortnite you're building on the unreal engine right so you can get take advantage of a lot you know not everything that's on unreal 5 but a lot of capability you can make something that looks pretty damn triple a so what that means is for a smaller amount of startup capital you can have a game that people can play in a platform that has m- millions and millions of people already active who are looking for content with an existing identity existing liquidity in their account and the friction is just much 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 lower now the churn will also be higher meaning that it's the switching costs in both directions are lower but but ultimately it's going to be a much the 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 traditional the the AAA and mobile gaming business models have become uneconomic the roblox and fortnite creative style you know kind of this games as content model is showing that it can be much more economic potentially i think the biggest headwind is that the rev scrapes at least you know on uh roblox are egregious and horrible and i could say that you can't say that but i could say that i think it's represent, reprehensible how high the rev scrape is that that roblox takes it starves Developers of capital that they can reinvest in their business or in the marketing or whatever, and I think it's inhibiting the growth of Roblox itself because they take such a hefty dive, um you know. So I think that, but I think that as you have competition amongst these platforms, those rev shares are inevitably going to go down, uh, or, or you know the the rev share making it to the developer will inevitably co- get higher. I think you will just see more and more of a shift. I mean look at what happened with fortnite creative mode w- with fortnite when they introduced uh, fortnite creative mode uh, with UGC when they introduced the new G- the UEFN update, they became the number one most played console PC game again, right? And so you know it used to be that they were driving that level of con- con- concurrency and 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 actives, through these huge, expensive integrations that they were doing with Disney or, you know, Travis Scott or whatever. Now they're able to do it because because creators are creating content and they're going out and acquiring users and saying, hey, come play this thing in Fortnite. And, and you know, when you see one of those posts on social media, it's like, okay, well, I'm already, already have Fortnite installed, already have an account, all that other stuff. I might as well play it. So I just think the switching costs are going down. Um, and the economics ultimately are going to to argue for this more fluid kind of metaverse type exp- you know experience. I just think this idea of like individual apps and the amount of money that you have to spend to make a game truly uh, um, stand you know self-sufficient as an app, you know, I just think it's becoming an uneconomic proposition. and And so I think you're just gonna see, Increasingly Roblox and and Fortnite and then hopefully others start to take more and more share and the economics will tell the rest of the story. And I just think we'll start to see this shift. I don't think AAA is ever gonna die. There will always be a place for AAA games when when you know GTA 5 will come out and it but it's almost a metaverse unto itself, right? GTA will come out it'll make billions of dollars. But but we're talking about market share and percentages. And I think that inevitably there's going to be the shift.
0: Yeah. And look, I think you you covered a lot of ground on the role this platform play. And I think Roblox specifically in my mind is almost like um, sort of an MVP or a prototype of what a future of the internet in 3D and social looks like to some extent. Uh, They may not be the biggest. They will likely be among the biggest. Uh, I think they have a good chance to be the biggest. They have an ambition to have a a billion people on the platform. You know, I had Dan Sturman, the CTO on the podcast uh, a month ago. He said, I asked him, "What what are the things that need to be true for Roblox to become a billion people platform? And he said, well, number one, it needs to be a utility. Has to be a utility, not just come and play games. Really interesting answer, right? Um, number two, it needs to be something that anyone can create. A professional company, a individual, 15-year-old in a garage, anyone can create from anywhere at any time. And the third, it needs to be completely device agnostic. It needs to run on all devices. Now, I would assume and believe that Fortnite Creative, to get to a billion people, will likely need to have some form of those three as well. Uh, they're working really, really hard. I believe they are in the early stage of the revolution as a platform. It is not trivial to turn from a game, a first-person shooter game, and turn that into a multi-pillar platform where creators can build and monetize and so on and so forth. So that's going to take time. But I'm very, very bullish on both platforms, if I may say so. A question for you though, because you were talking about the rev share on Roblox, and 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 these are challenges that you know Fortnite creator will deal with as well. What are some of the other challenges for growth that you see in both of these platforms in realizing the opportunity they have given the challenges of native apps and the fact that people will find it more uh, beneficial to build on top of existing app platforms?
1: Oh, just that. But but you said there were three things that he said he thought. One was it's got to be on all platforms. And what were the other two? (laughs) It's got to be
0: on all computing platform, computing devices. Uh, the, the other two is anyone can be is empowered and enabled to create and and you know and monetize and the third is roblox needs to be a utility meaning it, the reason people come to roblox needs to be beyond just playing games
1: yeah so i i i understand what he's saying there but i i would if i i would tell him that i'd be really careful on that point because on the utility you, know, you mean Yeah. I mean, look at what, look at what happened to Unity when they took their eye off the ball of gaming, right? You know, they got, they got really excited and and it happened at Epic as well, by the way, you know, oh, we're going to go into architecture. You're going to be able to make movies on this. You're going to be, you know, like there's all these other uses of gaming, you know, for this technology. And, you know, gaming is just one of those verticals and it kind of is somewhat driven by this idea that the money people, you know, and, and, and I think even some of these gaming executives, like, they don't want to just be in games. They want to be something broader, right? And um and, and partially it's because a lot of money people are not gamers, and so they don't understand that, how big games really are. So it's like, you know, the problem is that I think if you start to then divert a lot of energy into non-gaming things, you take your eye off the gaming ball, and they you know, they still have a very small percent of gaming market share relative to what they should have. So I I feel like I would, if I were them, I would just like really focus on being a great gaming platform and let the other things just happen. I don't, I don't agree with them on utility being necessary. I think, I think it may be a distraction, you know? And then I think the other thing is, I think it's actually professional gaming semi professional gaming creators who are going to who are gonna be the ones who drive the most of your growth. It's not gonna be individual creators. I mean, if you look at if you look even at YouTube at somebody like like Mr. Beast, you know, like yes, he is he started off as a UGC player, but I mean that guy is spending two million dollars a video. He is not a you know he's not a guy with a cell phone anymore recording himself, you know, in a video camera, he's doing something much more like television. So, um, even more expensive than television in some cases. So, you know, the, 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 dirty secret is a lot, what a lot of these UGC things do is they ultimately lead to PGC creators kind of being the tip of the spear and driving it. And then there's this long tail. And I, and that's not to say that I don't think there's a place for UGC content or, you know UGC. I I think UGC is great, but um, but if I were if I were if I had engineering resources and it was like put your resources into making it easier for the lowest skilled person to make games, or put them into more tools and more technology to make professional gaming teams successful. I'd focus on the professional gaming teams first, right? Um, so then you say, okay, well, why would, you know, why, why attract developers to this? I mean, or what's going to attract developers to this? I think it's ultimately going to be economics. I mean, you know, t- time to market, you know, the fact that you can make games in months, not, not years, the fact that you can make something that looks, you know, double A AA or triple A, um, you know, on a, on a, you know on a fraction of the budget um the fact that you can launch things that are smaller mvps than you would be able to think about as standalone games i think all of those things at the fact that you have lower funnel friction and lower kind of like just overall friction in 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 getting people to, to uh, in in converting the trial i think all of those things are going to ultimately be you know, they're just going to have a gravitational pull to them, right? And I mean, think about it from the perspective of like a VC. If, you know, especially right now in the environment with the, with the, you know, macroeconomics and and, and interest rates being where they are and startup capital being as hard to come by as it was. If you're trying to build a company today, you know, you're going to get a lot further faster on Roblox or Fortnite creative mode than you are trying to build an app in unity for the app store that's just a fact you know so i think that a lot of these um a lot of companies are going to be forced to leverage this technology because so much has already been done for you um and you can prove it out on such a small budget and you know the thing about a, 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 a fortnite creative mode is you can take all that stuff that you built in fortnite creative mode and turn it into a standalone game eventually so you know, I think that there's a pathway there to like build it inside, you know, Roblox and then spin it out. You know, you're kind of seeing that with like I think Adobe is starting to do similar things, so on Roblox. So I think that I I just think that the economics and the 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 speed of development are going to be so attractive that it's going to be it's going to be hard. You know, VCs are going to turn to entrepreneurs and say. Cool idea. Why aren't you building it in Roblox? You know what I mean?
0: That would be interesting. Um, I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's not something that I would rule out. Uh obviously I own Roblox uh fully, and I do see immense opportunity. Uh, you know, one of the things I remember when we were raising our seed round uh a few years back, I I had that I had a slide that showed for the particular IP that we we're building at that point, which was Ghostopia, which was an original game. I showed a slide where sure, I may make way less money on Roblox than I would if I'm building on unreal or unity, but the level of investment is in orders of magnitude smaller and the pace of execution is way it's a fraction of a fraction of the time and the money. Right. And I think that's kind of, you know, people don't compare apple to apple. It's a different modality. It's a different business model. And I think to your point, I think we're still at the early stages of understanding that this is a different business model. This is not mobile gaming. It's definitely not AAA. It's a different business model. And the truth is we're still very early on. And there's a few companies that are venture backed on Roblox, um, very few. And I expect there will be more once VCs understand that it's a different business model and also VC is buying into the vision, I believe, that Roblox can be way bigger than it already is. Uh, but these are a lot of things to buy into in a short time. So I, I'm not surprised that it takes a bit of time and UEFN is the same in my mind. It's that category. And I, I like the, the the point of what you said around you know, PGC. It actually makes a lot of sense, right? Professionally generated content, right? Because the reality is that the biggest games on these platforms are rarely... Created by a random user, he may have started it as a random user, but by the time it grows, it's already a twenty twenty five one hundred potentially people studio. You mentioned Adopt Me, two kids in a garage built it on Roblox. COVID ex- uh, propelled it. Now it's one hundred and fifty plus potentially studio still yeah, they, building they, primarily they, they ain't one game.
1: They're not in a garage anymore.
0: They're not in a garage anymore. That's for sure. Uh, and they they may not even need VC money anymore, right? It's more of a right. private equity stage or. Right, something that maybe Candle Media would want to buy uh, at some point, um, which you know enables me kind of to switch gears and talk about brands and IP owners. So, how because you know you, you bring a lot of experience from that. How do you, how do you think brands and IP owners should think about this emerging space, this
1: emerging category? Well, I think that so if you're if you're an IP, a major IP owner, you know. You have a very small number, you probably have a very small number of IPs that are truly licensable that as standalone games, right? So, you know, when I was at, when I was at, uh, Universal, for example, you know, because we were doing new Jurassic movies, everyone wanted Jurassic, you know, uh, you know, Parker World, it's big franchise, you know, so that one you can license, although, You know, it took us years and years to find someone who was willing to finance a AAA game for it. You know, Minions we could license pretty easily because it's been such a big franchise. But once you get past that, like a lot of the other franchises are just too small for a standalone game or or just don't lend themselves to enough content and depth and whatever for a standalone game. And so the best you could hope for you know, is like that game mill comes in and, you know, spends, you know, a million bucks or a couple, you know, 2 million bucks on a, you know, kid's title that they do at, um, you know, that they, that they, that they largely, you know, sell through retail. Right. And, you know, they sell a few hundred thousand units and that's about the best you're going to do on an IP like that. So there's a ton of IP that's sitting on the shelf. That's just not, getting exploited that could be doing, you know, gangbuster stuff in, in, in games. I mean, you know, I just happened to see before I came on here, a competitor of yours that I happen to advise, uh, uh, game fam, you know, they just, they just posted something about, they did a Barbie game that is the, you know, they say the number one most played, uh, branded game on the platform right now. You know, if you had made, they, you know, Barbie is made, you know, Mattel has made standalone Barbie kits games in the past that have done nothing and, and had, you know, very little traction, no cultural traction at all. I mean, this is the other thing about Roblox is that it's and, 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 and Fortnite is it's inherently social. It's stuff that gets filmed and YouTube videos get made out of it. It's not a single player game that you download on your Nintendo switch um, that you play and no one else sees. So, the, the marketing benefit of these platforms is so much higher. It's, it's, it's like if you're remotely in the kids space or in the you know young adult space, you almost have to be there, right, um, to be relevant. And like I said, there's a lot of IP out there that's not getting exploited that, I mean, imagine if, I don't know what Hello Kitty is doing in Roblox, but Hello Kitty is one of the top brands in the world. If that was in Roblox, like and and the right game was made, I have to imagine that's one of the biggest games on the on the platform. For example, so I just think that I, I think that for IP owners, there's there's a, a huge opportunity. They there are actually
0: they are actually they are they are actually on Roblox. They have a total of 340 million play sessions and around 4,000 concurrent users as we speak. So. It's one of the largest branded games, branded right, well, IP games on Roblox. Yeah.
1: There you go. There you go. So, I mean, it, it, you know, that's a perfect example of like, look, Hello Kitty has done lots of mobile games. They've done lots of, you know, console kids games. None of them have that kind of playership. So, I, I you know, if you're an IP owner, I think that Roblox, from a, at least from a brand perspective, if not also from a financial perspective, I think that Roblox has to be kind of like a huge priority, you know, uh, right now. And when you
0: when you think about another thing that I believe about brands that is really interesting, an IP owners specifically, is the business model that they've relied on for the past 50 years is, is, is really completely transformed, right? TV is no longer what it used to be. Cable is almost... Irrelevant for at least half of the population in the United States, right? And then now you have the streaming wars, which make it again a very challenging business model for most entertainment companies. And Netflix is still ahead of the curve and is expanding to other domains like gaming. Just this week, they, you know, uh, had a massive increase of their share price because of you know great results, and they're expanding to games, and there's a lot of excitement there. And so entertainment and IP owners are really at an interesting point of time where cinema is not what it used to be, TV is not what it used to be, and streaming is a war that most of them will not win. And these next-generation platforms around gaming and interactive entertainment could really provide an opportunity to monetize IP in a new way, but more importantly, in my mind, not just monetize IP and build marketing funnel But also because of the nature of this platform and the way games are built, there is an opportunity to monetize on an ongoing basis and build business assets and not just, quote unquote, you know, marketing and activations and so on and so forth. And, And I think that's something that is also, again, happening at a very early stage at the moment. We're starting to see IP. You mentioned Barbie. We're starting to see IP that is really interested in coming into places like Roblox primarily, but also UEFN. And there could well be more platforms. But I think it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on what does that mean for entertainment companies and how deep they go in the direction of platforms like Roblox.
1: I think that all of those are really good points. I wish that the the people at the top of the entertainment companies thought more the way you're thinking. Because honestly, like, they're just kind of in a roams on fire mode where like, you know... Every assumption they have about the business is blowing up on them, yet they're still acting as if they live, like they're going to, like they're going to get through this and we're going to go back to the way it was. And we're not. I think that there's a real danger of a lot of the traditional media companies just getting completely, becoming culturally irrelevant. You know, if they don't, if they don't figure out how to fully embrace the internet at some point, you know, because there's no one at Disney or, or universal or any of these guys in in the C-suites of those companies, nobody is sitting there looking at those franchises on a regular basis. Maybe they do it once a year, but like looking at the brand health of those franchises independent of the financials right so like no one's sitting there saying like uh let's take a property jurassic world you know what is our engagement on youtube on tiktok on roblox on fortnite creative mode on all these other things what is our daily active audience around jurassic world or around trolls or around whatever those should be top kpis for these, I mean, think about it. You have these companies that are built off of the idea of having these multi-billion-dollar franchises. Isn't that why you buy the stock? You're not buying the stock. If you buy the stock, you're not buying it for the like, you know, um, for the like hope that every now and then these guys bang out a, you know, breakthrough hit through their sheer creativity. You're betting on the fact that they have all of these, of all these franchises that are worth something. But they still don't look at the franchise, the engagement or franchise health, in the way that we think about it in the internet. Right? If your DAU was declining on your games, even if revenue was still holding strong, you'd be freaking out because you would know pretty soon revenue is going to go down. Right? This is just not how these uh, these big media companies think. So, you know, I think that. I think that they should be leaning much more heavily into this stuff. But I also know that there's a lot of churn, you know, it's like the the pushback to what I just said is like, oh, Karen, okay, Chris, but you know, two years ago you said we should be looking at NFTs and that was a disaster and boy, we're glad we avoided that and didn't take your advice. You know, my thing is I'm always, I'm usually too early to this stuff, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm rarely wrong in the end, you know? So So they should
0: tell you, they should tell you, Chris, you're not wrong, but you might be too early.
1: Yeah. Tell me I'm too early. Okay. You know, but my thing is if you're not early or late now, the media companies have an opportunity. They have the ability to sit there and watch and then jump in when the time and conditions are right. So they have that luxury. We don't have that luxury, but I also think there's a little bit of a false side to that luxury, which is that as the media landscape shifts so heavily, so quickly, these brands will just lose their cultural relevance. I mean, it's happening with, you see it happening with Marvel. You see it happening with Star Wars. Like, I think what you saw this summer at the box office was a complete rejection of like the last 10 years of entertainment. And yes, it's brands that were breaking through, Mario, Barbie, those things. So they were still IP, but it was like IP that had not been exploited. And at least one of those was, you know, a video game IP and the other one did a masterful job of social media, right? So, so short of the kind of if you take the digital out of those two IPs and say, do they still do the same results? No. So I just think ultimately like these brand companies have to these these media companies have to think different about brand management and finally get the memo. And that's kind of, you know, and they and they still they still haven't yet. And part of it is that everyone is playing defense and trying to save their own job and and long term thinking and you know, trying to think about how to reinvent this business, the the entertainment business for for the world we live in. It's just it's not rewarded right now by the town. You know, so when so I, I you know, I hope that one day When the batons finally get passed to the next generation of leaders that are more internet savvy, that we will finally be able to have some of these conversations and then look at, like, how do we bring these brands to life in the metaverse? And hopefully by then the technology is in the place to do it. Chris, one item
0: that I want to talk about before we wrap up is, and I want your brief overview or or brief perspective on is how... Do you believe generative AI is going to propel this wider space metaverse next gen internet?
1: I think that I think there there's a couple aspects to it. So one is I think we're going to move into an era of mass personalization meaning that the, you know, most games have been everybody has the same content and I play the game or I spend you know, but I earn, I I earn or I spend in order to get the con the, the content. But everybody's got the same content, right? I think with generative AI, and you see this with the PFP trended NFTs, for example. People, which was kind of very, it wasn't AI, but it was like very early generative art. When you have the ability to do generative art, suddenly people don't want one of the you know things that everybody else has got they want something that's unique and that speaks to their personality and all this other stuff and so i think we're going to what generative ai is going to make possible is this idea of you know mass personalization of everything in your game whether it's your avatar your inventory your weapons your housing your whatever you'll be able to um really get much more creative and expressive and have a unique online persona, which is what people want. They want to be able to stand out online the same way that they might, you know, in the real world, you know? Uh, and so I think that, I think that that's one of them. I think the other thing is that it's going to adjustable or, or, or dynamic tuning of games is going to make your gameplay, a lot of your gameplay, not all of your gameplay. Cause I think multiplayer gameplay still has to be skill-based and competitive. But a lot of single-player type stuff will become adaptive to your skill curve, right? So, you know, like, like I always say, like, I would love to play Elden Ring, because everyone sells a, says Elden Ring is a great game, and I'm the, you know, love J- George R.R. R. Martin, but I'm just not a good enough, like, <laughs> player of those types of Dark Souls-like games to get very far in it. So... You know, like I'm like, I'm just gonna get crushed and it's not gonna be fun for me. And I just and 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 I'm physically blocked from experiencing the content and the story. But if you were to adjust the skill curve to my level of skill, I would still experience a level of difficulty that a that my son, who's a way better gamer, you know, would experience. So relative to to my skill level, the curve would be the same. It would still be hard as hell. But I would have a shot. I would have the same percent chance of being able to complete the game. What I think that means is that is that more people games will become more accessible to more people. I mean, skill is a major. It's a major kind of factor of funnel friction, right? It's like if you don't have the skill, you know, a lot, a lot. What happens with a lot of these first person shooter games, you know, or, or uh, is they come out you know like fortnite or 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 you know warzone or whatever they come out kind of everyone's at a, the same level of skill and then there's a subset of the audience that gets highly skilled and they just always win and then they drive everybody else out right and if if and, and i'm not saying that that dynamic is going to change necessarily but my point is that if 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 gamers are on more of a level playing field when it comes to skill i think they will play people will be able to experience more games so I think that's one that that's and then the and then the last big area it, well, a, another big area is going to be like story and the ability for you know the game itself the NPCs you know all that stuff to be responsive to to your gameplay and to feel you know uh, in ways that will feel like those characters are living and alive the story is you know you're writing the story as you're playing it you know, that kind of thing, I think will be hugely compelling uh, and feel much better than kind of like the choice-based narrative, like branching narrative stuff that we did in the past. We're kind of moving past that era. and uh, Which, by the way, if you look at Telltale and what killed Telltale, right? one of the things that killed Telltale Games, it was that the story was the same for everyone, so I could just buy the game, install it, go on YouTube, stream the game, play it, and everyone else could watch it, never pay a penny, and get the whole story. You know, in a world of dynamic storytelling, that my story is completely unique to my gameplay experience, so, you know, that actually becomes a plus, because I could go on YouTube and play my version of the story based on what I did, but then you could go and do it and get a completely different experience. And so it's actually, it actually helps market the game, not, not take away from the game. Um so I think, I think that's going to be a big one. And then the last one is just going to be cost. Um, you know, like the, uh, you know, cost of coding cost of, um, you know, cost of customer service cost of, um, you know, of art production, you know, all of those things are just going to come down and it's going to make it a lot. It's going to make it a lot easier for, I think again, you know, smaller teams, you know, individual creators or small groups of creators, you know, will have access to technology that, you know, rivals what game makers had even five years ago or a couple years ago. So, uh, I think, you know, now is like a fucking terrible time to raise capital, but a great time to be an entrepreneur in terms of the technology and platforms that you have to play with. If you can survive the next few minutes you know if you can survive like world war three uh the great depression plagues locusts alien invasions uh you know three more pandemics god knows what else you know (laughs) if you can survive all that on the other end of this uh you know the companies that survive um will able we will be able to do so because they're using these tools and technology right chris what are you most excited about for the next 12 months I think the next 12 months is going to be pretty tumultuous geopolitically, economically. In the game space, I think we're still seeing, you know, some things play out like, you know, Apple's platform changes, you know, like there's a lot of macro dynamics still playing out in the games industry. So I don't think that there's like an event that we're looking forward to, like, you know, the release of PS6 or the or, you know, like there's not some new technology or platform or new iPhone or whatever that's going to change the game that that anyone can see. I think that that what it is, is it's a very volatile time of change. And what I like to say is change always creates opportunity. And so when things are chaotic, you you have to look at, you know, the tectonic plates of what's moving and figure out how to position yourself for where things are going to be and I think there are some very clear uh trend lines that I can't tell you exactly how they're gonna play out or when, but I can tell you what direction they're going. And so that's exciting to me. I I, I always like when the dynamic when the environment is dynamic and change is happening, but then like the big players are all retrenching and like ignoring it. That is like a freaking Las Vegas buffet of opportunity for entrepreneurs and creative people. Do you know what I mean? We have this wonderful principle in capitalism called creative destruction, right? And we're going to have a lot of destruction before we have the creative part. But, um, you know, if it, 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 it's not so fun to get destroyed, but it's a lot more fun to be swinging the wrecking ball. So, <laughs> I'm glad to be on this side of the wrecking ball. You know what I mean?
0: I totally, and I'm, I'm with you right there on that other side. Um, Chris, this has been a, a really thoughtful conversation and I think we covered a lot of ground and I know that the audience is really going to enjoy listening to it. So thanks for taking the time joining
1: me. Thank you, sir. Really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Into the Metaverse. We hope you learned a lot and explored new aspects of the metaverse.